Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. We are uh, four weeks deep into a five-week series this week, looking at the five solos of the Reformation. Uh, and I find this particularly exciting. Um, I'm particularly passionate about this because uh, these five solos or these five uh, Latin phrases, Latin was the, lang- the uh, kind of scholarly language of the day that they were written in, uh, they really sum up five of the deep fundamental truths of the Christian faith. Uh, they're five things that we as a church stand on, and so I'm really excited to be uh, speaking on uh, the fourth of these five tonight. So the five that we're looking at in total have been uh, Scripture alone, um, that Scripture alone is the highest authority in the church, uh, faith alone, that salvation is by faith alone, grace alone, salvation is by grace alone. Uh, tonight we're looking at the big idea that salvation is uh, through Christ alone, and then uh, next week, Tran's going to be uh, closing out the series for us, looking at uh, the idea that glory be to God alone in the church. Um, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could gather uh, here tonight, and, and we pray that uh, in this time together, looking at uh, your word and this solar, that we could be encouraged and uplifted, and that uh, you would come and speak to us, uh, that this message could uh, be from you, Lord, in such a way that Uh, our hearts would be filled more with your joy, Uh, we would be more in love with you, and that the light of your gospel would shine brighter on us. Amen. I think many of us uh, feel intimidated by the idea of having a relationship with God. Many of us can feel intimidated by the idea of having a relationship with God. Not everyone believes in God, and, and that's okay, and if you're here and you don't, you are incredibly welcome, we're glad that you're here. Um, for, for those of us who do believe in God or, or some sort of higher power, uh, a lot of us are, are kind of happy to have that notion, but the idea of actually being intimately involved with that God or uh, having a relationship with that God can be a scary thought. All throughout time, um, people have had a sense of the beyond, even those who wouldn't say they're Christian or wouldn't claim uh, a particular faith. All humans have a sense of something beyond. We all want to make sense of the universe. Uh, Scripture tells us in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has put eternity in the hearts of mankind. There is something in all of our hearts, all of our beings that knows, that longs for this not to be all that there is. We've tried to make sense of the universe. We've tried to connect with God. Man has come up with all sorts of systems and, and rituals, all sorts of ways of kind of wanting to connect with the beyond, all sorts of rules, all sorts of uh, smoke and smells and bells, all sorts of uh, practices because we know there's something beyond us and we want to connect. Christianity teaches that we can be connected to God through Jesus. His work on the cross his death and resurrection that restores us into relationship with our Creator. But even those of us who are Christian, who are followers of Jesus, even though we know these truths in our heads, we can forget them and forget to live out that reality. And instead, we we kind of decide that we like our systems, our rules, our rituals. And we forget that our connection to God is through Jesus, through Christ alone. 
And that was what was happening in the Western church at the time of the Reformation. And that's, the Reformation is what these five solas come out of. So in the 16th century, um, the Bible was mostly only available to the well-educated, well-off people because it was not generally available in people's own languages if they could even read it all. And so people had to rely on what their local priest told them, the Word of God said. And so in the first week of this series, we looked at the, the big important idea of Scripture alone being the highest authority, not, human, not human, humans or human institutions, but Scripture alone, because in reading the Bible for themselves is when people saw, hang on, some things are a bit skew if we've got to get back to what the Word actually teaches. And so people had to rely on what their priest told them about who God was, and so that meant that people generally had to rely on the church as an institution and their local kind of priest to, to mediate or to tell them what God was thinking and saying and doing. And, and even they thought God would, uh, they would have to tell God through the priest. So, so people went to the priest to talk to God for them, to ask God for forgiveness for them. People were not generally aware that they were allowed to or even could go to God directly themselves. People were not aware that they could ask God for forgiveness themselves through Christ. So people ended up going and doing things like going to confession and paying penance for their sins and perhaps even in some of the corrupt areas of the church at the time, paying priests money so that they could be forgiven for their sins. This was some of the practices that were happening. And on top of this was this idea of saints. Uh, we in the, uh, this church and, and uh, in the Protestant church as a whole believe that a saint is just another term for a Christian. So all Christians are saints. But this, there was this idea that there were special people, people with special ability or merit who had died and they could mediate to God on your behalf. And so rather than you pray to the Father through Jesus, you might actually pray to a saint and request that they pray to the Father for you. And the big idea behind this was that these people were saints because they were particularly good. They were particularly well-behaved or had done amazing things with their life uh, and that they kind of deserved God's favour because of that. And as we looked at over the last few weeks, looking at our salvation being by grace alone through faith alone, we know that no one actually deserves God's favour and we're only saved by grace through faith. But they'd forgotten that as well and so these saints, these great people, almost uh, borderline superheroes of the day, had special favour that you could kind of plead them to, to petition God for you, to mediate for you. And they were more likely to be successful reaching God for you than if you had done so on your own behalf because of how good they were. But the reformers, uh, the people who led this reformation, began reading scripture for themselves and saw that, no, it's actually Jesus. It's actually Jesus alone that allows us to talk to and have relationship with God the Father, to be with, to have, to live in him. They opened up scriptures like Hebrews 4 verses 14 to 16, and we're going to look at a few different scriptures tonight. Uh, if you want to uh, grab a Bible and crack it open as we go, feel free. 
Um, but we'll be in a few different ones. If you want to grab your phone and, and have your app or whatever and do Bible that way, feel free. If you want to just listen, that's cool too. I don't mind if you crack out the Bible because I like to be kept honest. And if you come to me later and says, you know what, it didn't say that or you got that wrong, I'm, I want to be open to that because, again, Scripture alone is our highest authority in the church. Not me, not you, the Bible. So please feel free to do that. But Hebrews 4 says this. This is about Jesus. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The people were taught and were thinking and and the common idea at the time was that to go to God, we have to go through a human priest. And in reading this scripture and some of the others that uh, we will look at tonight, the reformers recaptured this idea, rediscovered this idea that no, in fact, Jesus is the only priest we need. He is the great high priest, the one who mediates to God on our behalf. Christ alone, this sola, sola, solus Christus, Christ alone is the mediator between God and man. The people were told that they needed to go through a priest to talk to God or to do business with God and, and so they asked for their forgiveness from a priest. But this was wrong as Jesus himself is our great high priest. He himself is our advocate who sits at the right hand of the Father, praying to the Father on our behalf. And this uh, idea, this uh, heresy, lightly stemmed from the Old Testament priesthood. Uh, so in, uh, before Christ came, people did relate to God through a priest. People would go and take their animal sacrifice to the temple and the priest would slaughter it on their behalf and, and offer it up to God for their atonement and for their forgiveness. And so this is the, how the system was before Christ and then Christ came and the big idea was that he was meant to be our perfect sacrifice. He was meant to be our perfect high priest and therefore we go through him. But then this idea of the priesthood kind of crept back into the church in the preceding centuries, um, which I believe stemmed from the Old Testament. And this was the idea that you went to this person to mediate to God on your behalf rather than Christ himself. It's easy to kind of look at that a little bit and pull that out as an idea and say, okay, I can see how that kind of transferred from the Old Testament way of relating to God and it came into the New uh, Testament way of relating to God and we can kind of see how that crept in. And it's uh, kind of easy to say, well, yeah, okay, I can see how they might have got that wrong and to be a little bit critical of that. But I think it's much harder to see the fact that we, in fact, all still in different ways do this ourselves. We might not go to a priest to mediate our relationship with God, although some of us uh, may, especially those of us who might have been brought up in the Catholic, Catholic tradition may still do that. And if you find um, uh, God in that way, that's not always a bad thing. As long as you're aware, you can go to Jesus as well. But we do often hide behind other things to mediate our relationship to God. 
instead of going to Jesus himself, instead of going to God through Jesus ourselves. And I think we do this for some not unreasonable reasons until we think about it. Why would we go to God through a mediator, through a third party, not through God himself, not through Jesus, who is God himself? And I think we do it because we are scared. We are scared. We are hiding. We are scared to come to God ourselves. I don't know if any of you were ever called into the principal's office as a school student. Uh, primary school, high school, you don't have to put up your hand, but you won't. Yeah, we've got a hand at the back. Thank you for your honesty. Um, I was, uh, at least a few times, uh, more so in primary school than high school. I think I kind of uh, had a progressive sanctification there. But one time in high school, um, I got called into the principal's office and I was terrified because this uh, the year-level coordinator came and knocked on the maths classroom halfway through my class, going, bang, 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 John, come with me. And you just know, like, you're in trouble. And I kind of got pulled into the principal's office and I'm, I'm sweating. I'm not sure what I've done, but I think I've done something, or more to the point, I'm not, not sure what they know that I've done. <laughs> and I, I got sat down and apparently... Apparently, I had been terrorising primary school students from the school next door on my way home from school, and I'm thinking to myself, I've done a lot of bad things, but I haven't done that. <laughs> Turns out that John Harris in the year level below me had been doing that, and uh, luckily they eventually convinced them that it wasn't me, and they managed to catch on to the right person. Um, but I don't know, in that moment, before I knew that I was absolved of my guilt, in that moment of being called into the principal's office, I had a moment of terror, of fear, of her authority, of her power, of what she could do to me, and actually, more importantly, of what my mum would do to me when she phoned my mum. <laughs> I think, in some ways, a lot of us think about coming to God like we, we have that fear about coming to God that we might have, like, what can he do to me? What will he know about me? What will they discover? People can feel like that when they talk to God and I think we're scared and I think that's one of the reasons that we use a mediator, a go-between. It kind of puts a bit of distance between us and God. But Jesus, he taught us to pray to God as Father, not as Warlord. He taught us not to fear God. And because of his work on the cross, to remove all our wrongdoing. We can come to him without fear. And yet we still fall back into fear. Just like when they called out the other John Harris's name, all of my guilt was removed. On the cross, Jesus removes all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of our wrongdoing. Stuff we actually did, not just stuff we got blamed for doing. And we forget that. And there are a few common traps, a few common ways I think we try and put a mediator between us and God to mediate our faith that are not Jesus. And if they're not Jesus, if it's not Jesus standing between us and God to mediate, it won't work. If we are trying to, to have anything else other than Jesus as a go-between between us and God, it won't work. 
They make us perhaps feel good for a while. Perhaps they might be a bit therapeutic. It can feel good to get things off your chest. But ultimately, they are cheap imitations that fall apart within two seconds of use if they're anything other than Jesus. I want to go through a few of these things that I think some of us hide behind or use to mediate our relationship with God and why they won't work. And and the first is this. A lot of us rely on our family to mediate our faith. This is uh, perhaps uh, more of an issue for younger people, but I think it's something that we can all do at any age if we uh, haven't addressed this. We can think that perhaps I was born in a Christian family or perhaps I went to Christian school. Because of my upbringing, because of my family's faith, I'm connected to God. Are you relying on the faith of your family to mediate your relationship with God? Perhaps it's not even your parents. It could be a a brother or sister who's particularly close to God and you think, you know what, they're close to God and I'm their brother, so we're tight, right? That won't work because God is all about community, yes, but he also loves you as an individual and wants a relationship with you as an individual. The faith of your your parents and your grandparents or perhaps even the institutions you've been a part of can be a great gift to you, but they by themselves are not enough. They cannot mediate God for us. We have to come to him ourselves. Another, another trap, and I think this is a trap uh, particularly uh, perhaps for young reformed males. Uh, I have been guilty of this one in the past myself. But we have the trap of a great teacher, a great pastor, a great preacher, someone we might listen to online. I'm not pretending anyone would do this here. Um, but that certain pastor or preacher can, can mediate your faith for you. I know that there are certain preachers or pastors that I can listen to and I can get really inspired by what they say and I can really connect in with what they say and I can be like, yeah, that's awesome. Um, it's okay to have a favourite. It's okay to listen to someone who really encourages you. But if you know their words and their pithy sayings more than you know the word of God, you're not coming to God, you're coming to them. If you enjoy listening to Matt Chandler more than you enjoy listening to God you're not coming to God you're coming to Matt those of you who don't know who that is feel free to google it he's really great but God's better God's better if they make a great point in their sermon and you're like yeah boy go get him yet you're not transformed and you're just enjoying their theological thoughts you're really just living an imaginary faith through them. As much as I think God has given us the gift of pastors, preachers, teachers, uh, people who've written resources and books, people are fallible. That's the reason we have the sola sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the highest authority of God's word because people are fallible. Jesus is not. Be careful that you're not Mediating your faith simply through your favourite teacher. Living it out by listening to them and revelling in their witty sayings and not simply in the God of whom they're representing. 
I think also sometimes we can mediate or hide in borrowed faith. I would call this one belonging as your mediator. Sometimes we can presume that going to church or belonging to a Christian community or being in one of our absolutely awesome DGs that you should still totally be a part of is enough to mediate your faith. I don't need to pursue God because I'm there on Sunday and I'm at DG, so I'm cool, right? It's not enough to simply belong to the community, although it's a great place to start. We can hide in community. We can hide in coming along to church and pretend that we kind of have it all figured out when in reality we're not pursuing God for God, for who he is, for himself. And I'll get a little bit weird here, but if you don't have a relationship with God and if you don't have one of your own and you're just kind of watching other people in community have a relationship with God, you're kind of like the creepy dude watching other people pash. Get your own, bro. It's just weird. Are you just like a voyeuristic Christian watching other people be intimate with God and and not getting involved yourself? That kind of faith won't save you. That kind of being in community won't transform you. I think we can be encouraged by one another and we should hear about one another's faith and what God is doing in one another's lives and be encouraged by that. But if we're not actually then engaging ourselves and simply saying, it's so great to be a part of the church. Look at the way God's transforming these other people's lives. What is that doing for you? What is that doing for your heart and your sanctification and your holiness? Are you being ministered to by Jesus yourself? or just enjoying watching others. This next one I almost left off because I want to be careful with it because I don't want to discourage people from reading the scriptures at all. But sometimes we can use the Bible itself as a false mediator between us and God. Studying the Bible as a textbook, without connecting to God through it and letting it change you, is, can be a trap. In fact, Jesus warned about this, which is what gave me boldness enough to risk speaking about it. Jesus spoke about this in John 5, verses 39 to 40. He said this, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's not enough to simply bury yourself in Bible study and forget the God of whom you're studying. It's not enough to simply intellectualize your faith and not actually connect with God. And I don't want to discourage anyone from getting into the Word and reading the Bible because, like, confession, I don't do it enough. We all probably don't do it enough. But in your doing of it, don't pursue knowledge, pursue God. Pursue knowing the love of Jesus. Pursue knowing Him more. Pursue His transformation. 
Not simply knowing the most verses and having the biggest head. Most of us, we don't know enough about the Bible, we don't read it enough, and so I don't want to discourage people from doing that, but in your doing of it, don't pursue the Word, pursue the God of the Word. Let Him transform you. The Bible itself is a great tool where God can communicate with you, but the Bible is not God. It cannot mediate God to you, only Jesus can. We go to the Word so that we find Jesus. Jesus says, you search the Word looking for salvation, but refuse to come to me. Go to Jesus. And the last one of these I'm going to hit up today is others as mediator. Kind of never praying for yourself, but only asking others to pray for you. And I think we all have times when we don't know the words and we feel weak and we just want others to pray for us and that's okay. Uh, But 1 Timothy 2 says this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We should and can ask others to pray for us. But the truth is you don't need a special spiritual person to pray for you. Um, That doesn't mean that we don't pray with and for others because it has the benefits of encouragement and community and building one another up and other people sometimes having the words to pray when you yourself are in so much distress or confusion that you don't know what to pray. But we must not forget that it's available for us to go directly to God. Uh, In this church, uh, particularly, I have and will continue to hesitate to ever do some sort of altar call where I ask people to come to the front and I will pray for you. I don't mind praying for people. I don't mind praying with them. But you know what? I'm not magic. We don't have any magical people in the church who somehow have special access to God that you don't have yourself through Jesus. I'm willing, I want to pray for people. We should pray for one another and we're going to start doing that more than we have been doing. But we don't do that because certain people have a special connection to God that others don't have. Our connection to God is through Jesus. I think we we hide in others because we fear that us coming to God ourselves won't be enough, won't be good enough. He won't hear our prayer. But God doesn't hear your prayer because you're special. He hears your prayer because of Jesus. I think we hide in our mediators because of shame, because of fear. We have all done things, let's get real for a minute, we've all done things that we are not proud of. Even if it's simply just like tripping in the hallway in front of your co-workers or perhaps the entire school or university or sporting club or whatever you are, like we've all been that goofball, right? Or perhaps it's more than that and you've been exposed. People have seen you at your worst during your breakdown. You know, that moment where you've wanted the ground to swallow you up because all of a sudden your ruse of being a decent person is gone because everyone's seen who you really are. We've wanted to run, we've wanted to, to wrap ourselves away from the world and never come out. That's why we turn to these other things and not to God himself. 
Perhaps it's our family that's making us feel shame. We need to know your shame is with Jesus. Your shame. If you have fallen into any of these patterns, and I, I hazard a guess to say we all do these things all constantly or sometimes, don't despair. You have a great high priest. You have an advocate. And he wants you to be hidden in him, not hidden in these things. In Jesus, we don't need to hide in other things because there is no longer any shame. Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4 reminds us, encourages us this. It says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, and if you're in Christ, you have. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I want to just think about this idea of being hidden with Christ for a minute. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ. I think in this context it means your life, your eternal life, the life that you have is now actually in Jesus' hand. You have eternal life through him. But it also has another sense in by which it means all that has come before is now hidden with Christ. Your shame has died in Christ. It's hidden with him. He took it with him to the grave. Your sin is hidden with Christ, covered up. You are no longer hidden in your shame. You are no longer hidden in your sin. You are hidden in Christ, who is your life. There is forgiveness for you in your advocate. You don't find despair in your attempts to get close to God. Instead, you realise that in Jesus, you already are close to God. He's seated at the right hand of the Father and you're hidden in him. You don't need to attempt to get close to God. You already are in Christ, close to God. 1 John 2 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, if, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. He is the sacrifice, the atonement, the propitiation, the payment for our sins. The writer of Psalm 3, who I, I want to look a little bit about the writer of Psalm 3 in a second, he knew this. He, he wrote this. This is Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? This is a man in great shame and great embarrassment. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I'm hidden in you. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and I slept, finally rest. 
I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Does anyone know who wrote that psalm? It, I mean, it's, if, if you know much about the psalms, you could probably have a guess and you're going to be right because he wrote most of the psalms. But that psalm was written um, by King David. Now, I'm not uh, condoning to you, encouraging uh, Game of Thrones at all. I'm not going to condone that to you. Uh, conde- I'm not going to encourage you to watch that at all. Um, it's a pretty violent TV show. But before there was Game of Thrones, there was the Bible. King David wrote that psalm. And he was the second king of Israel. And he did a pretty awesome job. He was the, the, the richest, most powerful man, a great ruler, a great conqueror, conquered like many nations and many peoples before him. He was also a pretty good muso to boot, a bit of a poet, great with the ladies. In fact, a little bit too great with the ladies is where our story starts to get into a little bit of trouble. Uh, he commits adultery with Bathsheba and then has her husband Uriah killed to kind of cover it up. And, and then he's confronted by a prophet, a wise man of God, uh, comes to him, tells him a story about basically you're a sinner and you need to repent. Um, and he does repent, he comes back to God. But his mistake lives on and is his downfall. David's uh, older son, Ammon, uh, ends up uh, raping his half-sister, Tamar. And Tamar's brother, Absalom, takes revenge by murdering Amnon. And then Absalom, who committed this murder, he flees and lives in exile for several years, but then was later uh, permitted to return. And David was so upset by all this that he refused to see him for a few years after his return. And so resentment built between them, between the father and son. And eventually, uh, Absalom kind of began to court the disgruntled people within David's kingdom. And he put together a conspiracy to overthrow the throne. And David uh, does catch wind of it, but he realises way too late what's going on. And to survive, he takes all of his supporters and all of their families and they flee the city to survive his son who's coming to kill him and overthrow his throne. And as he is walking out the city, he's weeping, he's barefoot, he's shamed walking out the city. As if to add insult to injury, this other man comes out and begins throwing rocks at David and cursing him and kind of spitting these things at him. And the that man was the son of the guy that David had himself disposed to be king. So it all kind of comes around. And so this man had been in this great seat of power with everything going for him and then he had come to this, his most humiliating and traumatising moment. One of his daughters abused by one of his sons who then was murdered by one of his other sons. And then that son now 
coming to kill him and overthrow his kingdom. This was a low place for him. And now he's escaped the city and he's kind of waiting out in the desert to be hunted down by Absalom. He writes this psalm, Psalm 3. Now, you may not be able to relate to David's story directly. I hope. Too much. But we have all been in a place of shame. When our life has fallen apart, our public image has fallen apart, the the pretense of that we are someone or something has fallen apart, and when all kind of pretense of having it together at all is gone, going from king to barefoot walking through the city, having rocks pelted at you. Verse 2, that line of the psalm, he wrote, there is no salvation for him in God. That's not his saying. That's, he's saying this is what other people were saying about him. You are so wicked and evil and your life is so corrupt the way you uh, committed adultery and, and murdered to cover it up and then you wayward children. They're saying there's no salvation for you. Feel the burn, feel the shame. There's no salvation for you, David. People were saying there's no way you could be forgiven. God has forgotten you. David would have felt pretty forsaken, I wonder. But the hope comes in the fact that that David is the same David who is the ancestor of Jesus whom was forsaken and who cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment of shame, of being told he was forsaken, we see that then he goes on to write, God is my shield. He is my covering. In him I'm hidden. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that we don't have to be. When life falls apart, we lay hold of Jesus as our hope because our hope is built on him and it can't be built on anything else. The beautiful thing about this doctrine, this solar of Christ alone, is it gives us confidence that our trust is in the right place. Because if you were to trust in your family heritage, or if you were to trust in your position in society, or if you were to trust in your position even within a church leadership, or if you were to trust for your salvation and your identity and your sense of self, if you were to trust in anything other than Jesus, All those things are passing. All those things can crumble. Christ alone is the safe place to be hidden. Christ alone also means that he is exclusive among other gods or philosophies. This means that in Christianity, we don't think that there are many paths to God. We believe that Jesus is the only way. Jesus said of himself, he says in John 14, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe in me also. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, where I am, where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is saying, I'm God. The polite and popular idea that we are meant to espouse in society today is that all ideas are equal. People like to pretend and teach that there's in fact no difference between all religions and philosophies because they all basically teach the same thing, which is be a kind and good person. Did you know that Christianity doesn't actually teach be a kind and good person? Christianity, the message of Christianity is not be a kind and good person. In fact, the message, message of Christianity is that you are so wicked and depraved in and of yourself that you cannot be a kind and good person. It's the complete opposite. Some people in their faith, in, their, in their, what they perceive to be their belief, want to have a little bit of Jesus and perhaps let's take some ideas from Buddhism and let's take some ideas from uh, other spiritualities, a little bit of every faith, a little bit of every spiritualism, and let's kind of build some ideas around that and be a good person. But if you have an idea of Jesus who fits into your own smorgasbord of religious ideas, then you don't really have Jesus at all. You have your own imaginary pet Jesus. You're freaking on a leash who you take out to make you feel good. Jesus cannot stand alongside other gods and other philosophies and other ideas. He himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. We don't come to Jesus to be a good person and act kindly. We come to Jesus because we cannot be good and kind and only in him is forgiveness found. Jesus is in fact fully inclusive, but he's also fully exclusive. Christianity is every person's religion in that Jesus has made the way for all of humankind through him alone. There isn't one particular people group, one particular ethnicity, one particular family background who are welcome into the kingdom of God. Jesus is radically exclusive. It doesn't matter where you're from, where your parents are from, where your grandparents are from. Jesus says, come into my kingdom. But he's also radically exclusive in that he says, come into my kingdom and I am the only way into that kingdom. We don't believe that there are other ways to God except through Jesus Christ. Anyone can come, but they come by me. Jesus talks of himself as the gate. It's wide open, but you come by me. There is no room for relativism in a Christian worldview. What do I mean by that? Well, it means that you, you can't say, well, that's true for you, but not for me. 
Christ doesn't have those fuzzy grey areas. It's black and white in the kingdom of God. Jesus is Lord over all. He doesn't play nice with others. Jesus is either Lord over all of your life or Lord over none of it. The idea of Christ alone also stands for the supremacy of Christ. He is a jealous God. He doesn't allow us to have other lovers. We don't have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We have Christ alone. Acts 4, verses 10, it says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the peoples of Israel that by the name of Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well, a man had just been healed. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men which anyone must be saved. There is salvation in no other person than Jesus. He alone is able to save. Christ alone is the means of our salvation. Our salvation is only through Christ, his atoning sacrifice on the cross. Only through him can we have relationship with the Father. I want to ask in closing... What do you look to to save you aside from Jesus? Where do you look aside from Jesus to connect you to God, to mediate to God on your behalf? Sometimes we can turn perfectly good things like reading scripture into ultimate things and forget the God behind them. I want us to realize, I passionately want to plea with you to realize that all these other wells are dry and empty because true life is only found in Jesus and him alone. Christ alone is our mediator between us and God. Christ alone is our salvation. Christ alone is the source of hope and life and truth. In him alone can true life be found. Not in magical spiritual men or women. Not in systems. Not even in wonderful books of the word of God without Christ. Christ alone is our hope. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you love us so much that you did not remain far off but entered into human history to come and be with your people. You did so because you alone were the way that we could be connected back to God. Thank you for coming, for living, for dying for us, for our sin and our shame, and for raising to new life, to be seated at the right hand of the Father, to be interceding for us. We thank you, you are so loving and generous and kind to us that you allow us to come to God the Father through you. We repent and are sorry for the times that we have looked to be hidden in anything other than you. We have looked to anything other than you to mediate to God on our behalf. We pray that we would all find the joy and the life that comes through you alone. 
Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.